You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. How can investment properties be managed with the same level of sophistication as traditional wealth management. Joining me today to discuss this topic and more is Drew Reynolds, Chief Investment Officer at Realized. Drew, great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. Great to be here. Uh, Glad you were able to invite us and glad we're able to make it work out. Yeah, great to connect. Uh, Drew, I'm sure that a lot of our audience of high net worth investors and advisors probably have heard of Realized or have some level of familiarity with Realized. Some of them may even be on your platform and or have read a lot of the great educational content that your group p- pumps out uh, on a regular basis. But uh, for those who may not yet be familiar with Realized, can you give us a brief introduction to the firm and your role there? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the compliment. We really do value that educational content. That is definitely where we lead. Um, sure. So Realized provides investment property wealth management for individuals either directly or in collaboration with their existing advisors or uh, tax advisors. Um, As you mentioned up front or in the introduction, we believe that investment property wealth should be managed with the same tools and sophistication as traditional financial investments such as stocks and bonds. And I think we'll probably dig into that here a little bit. Um, But big picture, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it that you've got two enormous industries, wealth management and real estate, that by and large do not talk to each other. They just, for whatever reason, simply do not speak the same language. Real estate's traditionally deal-driven and transactional. Wealth management's typically planning and goal-based. But we think that the bigger reason that those groups typically have not talked to each other is that, frankly, well, uh, it's easy to look at projected returns with investment property or real estate. Traditionally, it's been very difficult to quantify risk. And if you think of any other asset class, if you can't quantify risk, it does not fit into that wealth management framework. And Realized has really kind of married those two industries together uh, by systematically quantifying risk and then being able to really speak the same language of wealth management and bring that into kind of the holistic wealth management um, process. Uh, We'll dig into that um, in a second. My role specifically is the chief investment officer. Um, which means I do a lot of the, uh, well, we'll talk about the risk quant stuff. I've had a heavy hand in that, really developing the structures and procedures that we're going to do uh, to implement the from the consumer-facing side, um, but also sourcing and evaluating deals on the other side that, um, you know, the risk quant's great, but really it's, it, as everybody knows, it really matters what how good the inputs are that go into those portfolios that, that makes a difference. So kind of task with with both of those. Yeah, that's great. I can't wait to talk uh, some risk quantification with you a little bit later in the episode. Um, riveting cocktail conversations for sure. Yeah, maybe it's a little bit geeky, but uh, I, I'm, I'm into it. And I think our listeners will get a lot out of uh, that conversation as well. But before we start talking about that, uh, I want to hear more about the history of Realized. Um, you guys started, I think, as a, a 1031 exchange or DST platform to showcase different investment opportunities uh, for 1031 or Delaware Statutory Trust investors. And then at some point, you added qualified opportunity zone investment offerings on your platform as well. When when did that transition occur? When did you start adding qualified opportunity funds and OZ deals to your platform? 
Yeah. So if I if I back up and kind of go from the the inception, which is back in uh, 2015. Um, I was happy to be, or lucky, I should say, fortunate enough to meet up with with our founder, David Wheeland, right when the uh, company was being launched. So I think I'm employee one. Uh, David was a former DST sponsor. He was actually the sponsor behind what was the second DST that was ever done back in 2004. Um, so it's a space that he knew very well. I come from a pretty heavy um, structured finance background around real estate. Um we both sort of had a shared vision. We both grew up in heavy real estate families. And I think this is a recurring theme here is that our families just made their wealth in a different manner than a lot of America, which was heavy, hands-on, direct property. And when we get into that wealth management discussion, I think what we both recognized, especially as we had you know, aging parents, is that here's you know successful people that have a lot of their wealth that they've worked very hard for. And now all of a sudden they're 70 something years old and they don't have the same tools afforded to them as somebody who maybe had a pension fund or a 401k or made their money in a more um, traditional way. So we started digging into it. One real interesting thing that we found is just the sheer um, enormity of the wealth factor that's held um, in the United States. There is an estimated $6.4 trillion, that's trillion with a T, of household wealth and investment properties in the US. And that is individuals, that's not corporate or, or investment fund held, that's individuals, that's 12% of the US population's collective net worth. Most of that is held by that aging baby boomer demographic, which is at or nearing retirement. And so the majority of these have also been held for a long period of time. And if you know anything about real estate, that means they're probably fully depreciated assets. And that means that they're staring at huge tax bills so if they sold and wanted to also retire from the direct property business, would be facing an enormous erosion of their net worth right at the wrong time, right as they're moving into to retirement. Um, and so that's really where the, the genesis of um, the investment property wealth management side um, came for that. Specific to DSTs or QOZs, and we'll talk about the, the differences before, you got to remember that both DSTs and QOZs are, are they're just legal wrappers that have certain attributes to them. At the end of the day, it's all about what the underlying uh, investment is, how that's structured, whatnot. So I, I do want to kind of leave investors with that message. A DST or a QOZ on its own doesn't mean a whole lot. It's a bit like asking a financial advisor, like, hey, how do you work with stocks and bonds in your portfolio? It's, well, you know, <laughs> it's a little more to it. Um, but we use DSTs and QOZs simply as inputs in the, in the very similar manner as a traditional wealth manager. And that really depends on what the investor is hoping to achieve, their risk tolerance, time horizon, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But we, we take a, obviously we do the due diligence behind the investments, but we're fairly agnostic um, to the specific offerings, meaning we're not, we're not pitching deals. We're providing solutions based on what the investors are trying to uh, achieve. Um, I think there was another question that, sorry, if I didn't answer directly about when we got into QOZs. Um, so we started in DSTs just to, to put the, the train back on course. We started in DSTs right out of the gate in 2015 because of um, it was the space we understood and it could help uh, investors right out of the gates. Um, we were very early adapters into the QOZ. Um, we are kind of tax nerds around here when the... Uh, Initial legislation came out. We we actually stayed up all night and, and read the, the jobs 
Jobs Act. And at the very back of it, as, as you're aware, Jimmy, there was a, a little section in there about this qualified opportunity zones. <laughs> we then proceeded to buy up a whole bunch of URLs or, or websites around uh, the concept. So for instance, we bought, we own qualifiedopportunityzones.com that I think we bought at about four o'clock in the morning, the night the, the, <laughs> the legislation um, came out. So uh, now we've been following it um, for a very long time and we're definitely hoping that it gets extended. I think it's another from that wealth management perspective, just another powerful arrow to have in the quiver. No, I think that's great. And by the way, that's why uh, my domain name is opportunitydv.com. Not a great domain name, but all the good ones were already taken by uh, by you and and some other groups too. I won't I won't blame you entirely for that, but but that's all that's all good and, and fine now. Uh, so you mentioned this trend of baby boomers at or nearing retirement, and the a lot of them are seeking to get out of direct property management, but there's just that huge tax burden there. Um, there are some tools in the quiver for them to utilize a, a DST structure or a QOF, Qualified Opportunity Fund wrapper. And, and I think you're exactly right to point out they're just wrappers. They don't really mean anything. It's kind of like um, you said stocks and bonds. I might say it's, it's kind of like a, an ETF. So if somebody asks you, hey, yeah. what do you think of ETFs? It's like, well, there's a million different types types of ETF. It kind of depends on your investment goals. Uh, those two wrappers, though, there's a lot of similarities between them. They're, they both offer tremendous tax benefits, um, a big deferral, capital gains deferral component in each one of them, mm-hmm. and eventually the ability to escape capital gains tax liabilities. Uh, with the DSTs, it's for your heirs, and with Opportunity Zones, it's for yourself or your heirs after 10 years or so. Um, but that's kind of where the similarities end. And beyond that, there are huge, huge differences between the two. Can you drill into the the biggest differences between those two different types of wrappers? Yeah, I mean, you, you nailed it, right? They're, they're taxed advantage private real estate vehicles. Other than that, they're opposite ends of the spectrum. DSTs are typically core and core plus real estate. They're almost exclusively stabilized assets. And um, by statute, they're defined. You know exactly what you're going into. It's not a fund structure, nothing changes. Um, so for instance, it might be a portfolio of Walgreens, very easy to wrap your head around. Um, a big difference is also that it's, they're very income orientated core and core plus real estate in general is not swinging for the fences. It's designed more of an income vehicle. Uh, the QOZs on the other hand, by definition with the original use and, um, to be clear, I'm only speaking about the real estate side because I, I don't know a whole lot about the the, <laughs> the business side. To be to be frank, um, but look, that's ground up development in most cases, and I would also go that it's ground up development by definition in transitioning areas. So it's pretty far off on the other side of the the risk scale, but provides a much heavier uh, appreciation or growth play. So if you take that out of the context of real estate. Um, for a second, it's it's very different, and I know, you know, we got to be careful here about comparing other investment vehicles or asset classes. But like, you know, municipal bonds do something very different than venture capital money. One's not right, wrong, better, worse. It really just depends on what the investor is trying to accomplish, what their risk tolerance is, do they understand what they're getting into, um, and by the way, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, I would like to put one thing that we see, though, a lot, I think, in the distinction with the DSTs and the QSEs is this concept of um, investor suitability or that really goes around the, the risk tolerance. So 
And the DST side, because it's, we're really talking 1031 exchanges, we almost always see a real estate investor that owns a concentrated position in real estate. They're probably selling a rental house, something like that. And so with the DSTs, we're almost always able to move them from a single property into multiple properties that are stabilized. Point being is that most of the time we are actually staying at or lowering the risk position that they are already in. And so DSTs, I would say, are at least a reasonable option in a very high percentage of those situations. QOZs because they're open. You, to you immediately, sorry to break break in here, yeah. but you that type of investor in that example, he gains immediate diversification to his investment portfolio, his real estate investment portfolio. Is a real estate investment portfolio? Yeah, and and it's and it's typically institutional grade type of investments. It's not some you know maybe two or five million dollar apartment building that he's directly owned and operated for God knows how many years, right? And suddenly he's able to put that to use, fractionalized ownership of a handful of properties that are diversified across different property types or locations, right? Correct. So we just, case in point, we just did one, um, a family that sold really a class C, to put it nicely, (laughs) apartment complex that had been very hands-on, you know, gotten to the point where we're talking about for retirement, just kind of wanted out of that. We transitioned that into 11 DSTs um, that the underlying um, holdings of those DSTs equated to 97 properties in 35 states and was touching almost $2 billion worth of underlying real estate value. So point being one property, hands-on, high maintenance. Now we're getting into something that's you know somewhat approximating a REIT holding um, so I'd argue that we 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 dramatically changed the risk profile to heavier diversification, lower risk across a broad spectrum of of diversification. And you got the management burden off of there. You got the management well. management burden uh, off of them for that. Um, but point being, we we see a lot of those opportunities where we it's pretty clear to say that we're we're certainly not increasing the the risk where you where you are. QZ is a little different because you've got the good news is any type of gain. Right. You could sell your comic book collection or it doesn't really matter. But let's let's maybe back up and say, well, maybe things have changed a little bit here in the last few months, but we were seeing investors that had run-ups in the stock market. So if I'm coming out of an equities portfolio in the SP 500 index, I'm now potentially moving from a highly liquid, diversified blue chip stock portfolio into concentrated, highly illiquid real estate development which is the opposite end of the, of the risk spectrum. Now, the flip side is with QOZs, you're able to take out your initial basis. Whereas with the 1031, you typically have to redeploy 100% of the capital. So one could argue that you know if I'm taking my original basis and that's risk off and I'm you know, over-concentrating something going in with the gains, I, I think the point being is that they're just, the investments themselves and the nature of where those gains originated are very different. And so we need to just be mindful that and remind the investors sometimes that like tax benefits are great, but like that's like a small component of it. These are long-term, you're going to be held up for 10 years. Is this the risk tolerance you're comfortable with? Do you need income? Do you need liquidity? Do you need diversification? And so I, I just caution investors to not be so quick to rush into something strictly for the tax benefits, that it's really that wealth management with, you know, there's a limited number of tax wrapper vehicles available to be able to to accommodate um, those goals, but it's still the underlying investment at the end of the deal. At the end of the day, sure. No, and and the stock market's been 
fairly rocky here the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months or so, and a lot of economic uncertainty brought about by um, the bear market and the S&P or the broader stock market, interest rates on the rise, uh, inflation numbers on the rise, are we headed toward a recession? So a little bit more uncertainty. But I remember at the end of 2021, like the last few months of 2021, um, we had kind of pulled out of the mini COVID bear market recession, whatever you want to call it. And the, and the S&P 500 was, was off to the races again. And I was, we were looking at the end of that uh, five-year basis benefit expiring at the end of 21. Couple that with the fact that there were a lot of stock market gains um, yeah. from the previous, you know, previous six to 12 months, but then, you know, going all the way back further than that, if you want to go back a decade or more, depending on when you got into the stock market, you might, you might have stock market bases from the 70s, <laughs> 80s, 90s, you know, any any way you look at it, yeah. heading toward the end of 2021, you probably had significant gains in the stock right. market yeah. if you were a high net worth investor. And, and, and that was the story that I was telling Drew was, hey, maybe now's a pretty good opportunity to diversify out of the stock market because you're probably overweighted in stocks. Yeah. Maybe use this as an opportunity to uh, invest in real estate within some yeah. opportunity zones. Again, it's not it's not for everybody. There's certain right. there's there's a, there's a different level of risk here, but it's something worth taking a look at. I don't know if that's as true today because we have had some bumps in the stock market that basis benefit went away, but I think it still holds true a little bit. You likely, I mean depending on when you got into and again, this is a hypothetical S&P 500 stock investor, not sure, for everybody. Sure, sure. But I think it's a pretty common stock holding or or something similar to it. You right. might have a big run up you might have some uh, unrealized gains. Maybe you're still overweight in stocks. I think there's still a play to at least take a look at opportunity zones as a way to diversify and be able to defer that tax hit that you might take on on selling any positions within the stock market. I think that's a that's a great point that 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 you bring up, and I just kind of wanted to piggyback off of that a little bit there. You're absolutely right, and it also reminded uh, listeners that it's not none of these are all or none transactions. So we're not necessarily suggesting you put all your money into the, the QT, but um, it's definitely an, it's an option, right? And it's it's really just case by case. We got to understand what the investor is trying to do and in all the things that I mentioned before. Yeah. And and as you rightly point out also, the with with the not with the 1031s and the DSTs, but with the OZs at least, it's only the gain that right. you need to really put to work into the OZ. So you still have that that basis or that principle, whatever you want to call it, to, to do whatever else with. Maybe yeah, you want to yeah, reinvest it. And we've seen that too, sort of the bifurcation of risk, where if I'm moving to a concentrated, illiquid position, maybe I take the basis and I go do the opposite, depending on maybe if they weren't in the S&P 500 fund, maybe you take that and put that back in the S&P 500 fund or something that's a little more stable, more liquid. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so why I'm, I'm curious, um, kind of getting back to just to, to, to kind of back up a little bit, talk more about realized, um, how and why are DSTs a part of realized business model? And, and, and what is, what is realized view overall on the tax advantages of DSTs? We talk oftentimes about qualified opportunity zones, OZs on this podcast and DSTs, Delaware statutory trusts have come up um, a few times here and there, but just, just kind of curious your thoughts on on DSTs overall. Yeah, like we started really because of where Realized um, started was, was that was a space that we understood and being able to start with the um, the DSTs and get, get up and running. What we found really that the transition um, 
for us is that we started as a direct-to-consumer model. And as I mentioned, um, some of the early employees here came from real estate families. And so we recognized that, and as I said up front, wealth management and real estate typically don't speak to each other. So we would find an investor base that was typically over-concentrated in real estate. And they would come to us and they had no financial advisor. Most of them didn't even have a CPA. Um, really kind of crazy how many <laughs> people like this are, are out there, the true millionaire next door, uh, do-it-yourself type. And so what would happen is we'd, we'd get to know them, found that they had a concentrated position in, in direct property and realized it would become somewhat of a de facto wealth manager. Um, and due to the nature of their situation, at least this is the early real, um, realized days, the DSTs were the primary vehicle that we would go forward with because of they were mostly hold a direct real estate. And this is actually before QOZs were, were a thing. Um, later, we added QOZs more as a complementary solution. And that still tends to be the case on the direct-to-consumer side, where we're, we're typically engaging with an investor who does not have a current financial advisor, or maybe they're under-advised. Mm -hmm. uh, however, in recent years, and really kind of where we are now in the evolution of the company, is we're moving more into a sub-advisory and portfolio management business, where we are actually partnering with RIAs and wealth managers and we're seeing a greater interest and greater use of the QOZ with the wealth, with the sub-advisory space. I think that that investor set is more varied. The investors that already have a financial advisors are more likely to have things like equities portfolios or other, you know, more diversified holdings. Um, and so we've really now kind of developed this um, symbiotic relationship with the, with the RA and the wealth management community. Um, that our work with the RAs and the wealth managers really kind of arose from two different ends of the spectrum. Um, as I just mentioned, we, we became somewhat of a de facto wealth manager for a lot of these investors. But if you're really looking at it from a client first perspective, I give the example of the, the DST portfolio upfront where we move somebody from a concentrated position to this very diversified portfolio. And that's great. But the reality is there's still in a bunch of illiquid real estate. They haven't totally and holistically managed their wealth. Realize it's not a wealth manager or a holistic wealth manager. Uh, we're never going to be one. We don't want to be one. But if I'm looking out for the client, um, especially as they age and capital preservation becomes more important, you know, kind of lower risk tolerance as, 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 as people get older, it tends to be natural. We should be looking on a very tax aware strategy. We mentioned before the, the erosion of the the embedded net worth, but we should be passing off some of that worth into the, the advisor network and getting into more liquids, more things that are estate planning friendly, really looking out for what the investor is trying to do. And so we've started partnering with these uh, wealth managers um, who seem to be pretty happy with the uh, referrals of the under-advised clients. Um, on the flip side of the spectrum, what we've seen is, we mentioned up front, the wealth managers in real estate don't often speak. But going back to that giant $6.4 trillion you know, bucket of wealth that's sitting there, kind of one of the last untapped pockets of wealth um, on the American balance sheet, and your traditional wealth manager didn't always have um, a viable solution to be able to, to work with their client on that. So they would- Because he's, he, that, that, that wealth manager, he's busy working on the bonds and equities correct? making sure that that's all ticking- Maybe doing some insurance stuff a little bit too, but the the investment property, 
stuff kind of kind of fell by the wayside, I guess. Is, is fell by the wayside. We'd see it time and time again when you said, well, what do you do about the 20% of my net worth over here? And they'd say, yeah, I got nothing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then likewise on the QOZs, again, very different products, but they're very real estate heavy, you know, development, real estate fund structure. To your point, the wealth manager kind of has a day job with the stocks and bonds and the general portfolio management for them to try to uh, embrace or become an expert in the real estate field. Some of them will do it and some of them have done a very good job. Others, especially if it's on a more kind of select basis or it's not a core function of their business, it makes sense to have a group like Realized available to them on an as-needed basis. Um, and in that case, we just come underneath as a, as a sub-advisor. Um, in some cases or in a lot of cases, we never directly interact with that um, advisor's client. Uh, don't need to. Just make them look smart and happy to go on from there. Uh, but the point being is it's really just kind of become a, a pretty symbiotic relationship of us being able to pass clients to them, them being able to pass clients to us. And ultimately it's, you know, for the benefit of the, the investor. I think it's really helpful and uh, helping, helping the investor kind of keep all of his ducks in a row with his entire portfolio, not just this 70 or 80% over here. And, and he's on his own for, for, for the balance of it. Uh, so Realize has been around pre-OZs. You started adding OZs to the platform in 2018 when they started coming online with the first qualified opportunity funds started coming online. And, and I'd imagine that probably expanded your market a little bit because before you were really only working with real estate investors who had real estate transactions and needed to look at 1031s and DSTs. And now are you seeing a different capital base? Are you seeing stock investors who have gains? Or are you seeing uh, business owners who sell a, biz a business or part of their privately held business and, and they're coming to you as well? And, and, and I guess, second part of that question, you know, when do you advise whether a DST or an OZ is right for, for you as a client? Sure, sure. Uh, so the answer is yes, it's obviously expanded. You know, we've got more uh, products available and uh, we'll continue to add to that as, as it makes sense. Um, I, I do think that it really depends on the channel that we've come from on our, that direct to consumer basis still tends to be uh, because we do have a heavy internet presence. And so we're finding investors that are, that have that real estate problem that we talked about before, but don't have that incumbent financial advisor. And so that sort of, that comes in typically more through a 1031 need. And then the QOZ tends to be more of a follow-on, uh, as I mentioned, that de facto wealth advisor, Hey, did a great job on the, the 1031 need. Uh, I also, I forgot, I've got this pension fund over here or whatever, maybe liquidating. And do you have anything for that? Um, it tends to almost kind of be the other way around on the RIA side. I think the RAs um, or our sub-advisory are maybe more in tune with an uh, individual's non-real estate holdings, the business sale or the stock portfolio, just because again, that's the world that they live in. And so in that, the conversation's almost flip-flopped. The, mm -hmm. you know, I've got a non-real estate gain. We're not real estate experts. Can you help me? Oh, by the way, did you know that, have you ever asked a client what they have in direct real estate holdings? So I didn't know that they own four rental houses. So well, we can help you with that too and bring those assets um, uh, under management. So I think that that's the, the kind of, it really depends on the, the, the channel or the path that it comes through yep. in terms of, um, you know, which makes sense. Again, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, although a lot of times you, you do have to make a choice. Um, you know, I think you had, um, uh, Jay Frank from Canner Fitzgerald on a few weeks ago, we worked yep. closely with, with Jay and his team. I think he sums it up 
um, pretty much as we would. It, it, the first thing you got to look at is is basis. If if they have meaningful basis, it's an opportunity to take some cash out and do something else with it, even move directly away from real estate. Um, well, actually, I guess the first thing would be, is it real estate or is it not real estate? Right. <laughs> but provided we're across that, let's say somebody had a property. Uh, if they have meaningful basis, now it's an opportunity to take some chips out of that and diversify into another asset class. Uh, if not, that you know benefit is, is definitely muted. Um, one question we ask a lot of is income dependence or income reliance. We have, uh, especially with these heavier real estate holding individuals, they may have rental properties that were throwing off pretty meaningful monthly income for them. And to go into a QZ that's more development focused, it could be a few years before you see meaningful income. To be fair, that income may ultimately be higher as you ramp up. But you know, the question is, can you go three years? Can you go four years without replicating that check you were getting from the property you sold? That tends to be a really big one um, for us. And then it's really that that risk profile that the the DST is more income orientated, uh, core core plus. Uh, the QZs by definition are higher higher octane. Um, and then I the the last one I'd add there is is time frame. That on a QOZ, very difficult to exit prior to ten years, and that really probably means it's more like twelve to fifteen, uh, or is somebody should be preparing for going into their um, DSTs. On the other hand, have some have shorter holding periods. Uh, we still would certainly advise that, that they are longer term investments, and you should be prepared for that. Uh, but we've done things like developed a, a secondary market um, for. DSTs to provide um, interim liquidity. And so we're seeing whether it's the buying or selling of those where that can be managed uh, oftentimes in a matter of a couple of years, still longer term-ish. Point being, there's a lot more kind of near rollover, nearer term options for the DST, whereas the QOZ, there's some options to get out, but it really defeats the entire purpose of, of going into there. Yeah, neither, neither one of them is liquid, but DSTs yeah. probably are a little bit more liquid. You can get out of them probably a little bit more easier than you can with a QSA. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a fair statement. But but for the record, they're very liquid. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. I agreed there with you completely. <laughs> if you get into either one of these types of deals, you need to plan on being in it for at least a few years. And with QOZs, at least 10 years. I, I might say, and by the way, I'm not an investment advisor. I don't want to be giving investment advice here, but I might say if you're nearing retirement, probably QOZ may not be a good option, especially if you need income immediately or income within the next couple of years. DSTs might be a better option there. If you have a longer investment horizon, if you're younger and, and you want to take a little bit more risk, maybe a QOZ is a better play for you, or at least it's probably more, more worthwhile to at least look at as opposed to a DST where you can afford to wait a few years before you get that income and you're willing to take on a little bit more risk for a higher potential reward. Any thoughts there? Yeah. And I, I, I kind of go back to the, in the wealth management approach, right, is, is we look at things in its entirety in a portfolio construction. So mm -hmm. again, it's not necessarily all or none, depending on the investor's situation. I'm kind of looking at it in a vacuum, yeah. I'll admit. Yeah. 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 So what we've done, like for instance, on the, um, DST side is we'll use uh, oftentimes an allocation towards a structured operate product. I don't know if you've gotten into that on, on this call, but right, that provides more of a liquidity-ish sleeve. I got to be careful using that term, um, but um, that's more for those that are looking at capital preservation. The, the, the converse or the other side of that is, is a QOZ investment, which could be the growth sleeve. Mm -hmm. And we could actually do it across the spectrum. So maybe you do some in the, an upreach, some in traditional DSTs, some in a QOZ, and that starts to feel a lot more like a balanced portfolio. Again, if I was looking at stocks and bonds, I may have an allocation to 
startup companies or something like that in my higher risk tolerance, probably not all my money, but would it make sense to put 10, 20, 50% depending on who you are? Um, yeah, depending on the conversation, I think it, it really just comes back to that these are just these are simply inputs that have certain attributes to them. How do the some of the the you know all the puzzle pieces fit together and really on an, on a holistic basis best position the investor to achieve their goals? Yeah, how balanced is your portfolio with stocks and bonds? You have a certain target. What else do you pose? Yeah, I think that that's another right. big one. Is you know if if you're <laughs> if you're already long and highly risky, you know maybe if all you own is Bitcoin, maybe putting more risk on assets is not a good idea. Or conversely, if all you own is really safe stuff, maybe you should be taking more risk. I, you know, it's it's very situational and individual dependent, and and it depends a lot on the investment horizon of the individual too. Are you Absolutely. are you sixty five years old or are you twenty five years old? There's there's totally different risk profiles for those totally two types of investors. Absolutely. Um, well, just we're we're running out of time, kind of winding down here, but wanted to get a a couple of more thoughts from you on on broader trends uh, through the market. Obviously, it's been a little bit tough on everyone as of late. Uh, what do you view as some of the biggest challenges, both for Delaware Statutory Trust and for qualified opportunity zones, qualified opportunity funds moving forward? Yeah, I think I can kind of, uh, this is one of the few cases where I probably can <laughs> bucket them uh, together because I, I think the the overarching themes are the same. Um, we see headwinds in the short term, uh, but we see very strong tailwinds in the longer term. Um what we've been saying to a lot of our investors is in the near term, you know, tax advantage or no tax advantage, the these vehicles are still subject to the same market conditions and fundamentals as the rest of the real estate market, which is um, admittedly uh, more challenging today. Uh, one partially mitigating factor for the industry is that the catalyst for both DSTs and, and QOZs is often, um, you know, more of a lifestyle decision than a pure financial decision. For a lot of investors, it may now just may be the time to sell that business or now may be time to sell that investment property. Um, is kind of a tangent to that. You know, the other interesting thing more on the 1031 front is because of the timelines, you really have to invest back into the same market that you're selling it. So a few years ago, maybe you sold something for a really high appreciated price. Problem is you got to buy back into the market. At a at top of the market, it's very difficult to sell high buy low. Whereas now, maybe you're not getting the price that you hope for, but it may provide an opportunity to actually come back in at more of a reset basis into the the reinvestment vehicles. So, you know, just got to weigh that. Um, moving away from kind of the general uh, market challenges, I think that one thing we've seen in um, our world is that uh, both DSTs and QOZs have gained an awful lot of popularity in the last few years. Um, and so we've seen a lot of new players in the space, both on the advisory and on the sponsor side. Now, this is America. That's great. Competition's a good thing. Um, but I think investors should um, be prudent in their selection of who they're working with on both an advisor or sponsor side and just make sure that it's not necessarily the uh, late entrance to the space and that they do actually have the, the qualifications around them to provide whatever service it, it may be. Um, I think longer term, those kind of late movers into the space, uh, as you typically see with any um, any financial situation, right? Eventually, they're going to move out, move on to the next big thing uh, or perceived big thing. Uh, but for those of us that are committed to the space, um, we think we're at the front end of the largest generational wealth transfer in American history, and investment strategies such as DSTs or QSEs that have those tax components to them and can help maintain 
some of that wealth really um, bode well for for generational wealth uh, wealth transfer and estate planning. So we we think that the the long run is looking very promising. Yeah, well said, Drew. I I don't disagree. Um, hey, really want to thank you for sharing all of your insights today on on DSTs and opportunity zones and how investors should consider those as tools within the broader portfolio management, wealth management of their overall wealth. Uh, before we hop off our interview today, where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and Realized? Yeah, absolutely. Best place to be would just go to the website, which is www.realized1031.com. Or as I mentioned, if you go to qualifiedopportunityzones.com, you'll just get redirected there. <laughs> um, from the investor side, I, I would uh, recommend starting. We've got a resources section, as Jimmy, as you mentioned up front, um, just an, a ton of content on all things, um, DST, QOZ, all of the above. Um, for advisors who may be um, listening, there's a, also a financial advisors section on there that will uh, dedicate you to more kind of channel specific resources. We'd love to hear from you. Perfect. I'll make sure to uh, link to the Realized website and the different resource centers on the show notes for today's episode. And as always, you can find those show notes at our website. Just head to opportunitydb.com slash podcast. I'll have links to all the resources that Drew and I discussed on today's show. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Drew, thanks again. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks, Jimmy. It's been fun. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.